You are listening to the Ellen Gray Podcast. I am Shalati Lungwane, a manager in the institutional clients team at Ellen Gray, and your host for this episode. This year, Ellen Gray is celebrating 50 years of investing. Over the last five decades, we have had the privilege of helping our clients build long-term wealth. We would like to thank you for placing your trust in us and will continue to work to ensure that it remains well-placed. In recent years, environmental, social, and governance factors, commonly referred to as ESG, have taken center stage and become a hot topic around the world. The impact that companies have on the environment and society and the way that companies behave now face greater scrutiny from the media, activists, and ordinary citizens. Some of the complexities have come to the fore as the debate around the energy trilemma intensifies. To help us unpack these complexities and to give some color to the fundamentals that underpin our thinking around them, I am joined by my colleagues, ESG analyst Rain Adams and governance analyst Nicole Harmon. They will share some insight into what responsible investing means to us at Alan Gray. Rain, let me start with you. You first joined Ellen Gray about 12 years ago. What are some of the key things that have kept you at the company for so long? It's actually a surprise even hearing that I joined 12 years ago, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but uh, there's, there's a, quite a few factors for me. So I think the first is I really like the company values, what it stands for. Uh, there's, there's a strong social focus as well and a philanthropic focus. And that was actually instilled by Mr. Gray himself. And it's endured. And I really respect that. I also like the people, and that's not just on the investment team across the business. I think there's a lot of smart people that, you know, we can work with and learn from. And then finally, in terms of my job specifically, I think it's so great to be able to earn a living while simultaneously learning more about the world that you live in. Mm -hmm. And so I love being in a research role where we can do that. But then at the same time, because I focus specifically on environmental and social, mostly within ESG, it also speaks to things that I'm passionate about. I do have an interest in sustainability. I think we've faced some big social challenges in the world that we have to all consider and grapple with to try and produce better outcomes. So yeah, it, it feels like it actually meets me on, on a couple of different factors. Nicole, I can't imagine that you thought you'd become a governance analyst from an early age. How did you end up in the field and what drives your well-known passion for good corporate governance? I think that's accurate. I didn't know what a governance analyst was <laughs> until I joined this role. I started doing my audit articles at EY down the road to become a chartered accountant. And you don't specialize, but somehow I kind of specialized in financial services. So I audited a big insurer, the investment manager, the fund administrator on the back office end. And really always with kind of a regulatory undertone, I was always found myself auditing the reg work. And then later when I joined Alan Gray in a finance role, I found myself on the preparer side of reg work. So that's always been something that interested me. I then joined Alan Gray after I qualified as an accountant. I knew I didn't want to be an accountant, but it was the company that I wanted to be a part of. So I took the role. And then the opportunity to join the investment team came up. My then boss sent it my way, Claire, our CFO, and asked if I'd be interested in applying. And, and I took the opportunity, and that's how I ended in the role. I wouldn't say I'm passionate about corporate governance. I'd rather say I'm passionate about what good corporate governance can lead to. And 
Rain and I were talking the other day just about the quickest way to destroy shareholder value is to have a governance failure. So I think that's what makes it so enjoyable is that it's tangible and there are real world consequences. So you can't understate the importance of having a strong board that stops and really questions management when they want to go out and make poor decisions. So I think it's the realness of the job that makes it so intriguing for me. So I think maybe to start off for me, I thought it would be quite interesting to maybe paint a picture in terms of, you know, where you guys sit within the investment team, because I think it's what makes a sort of unique in terms of how the team is structured and the fact that, you know, we've got an ESG team that's actually embedded within the investment team. So maybe Nicole, you can just give us some color. For me, I know you guys are actually like my neighbors. We literally <laughs> sit on the same floor. You know, we see each other all the time. Sure. So we actually an investment team of 27 people and three of those are ESG. We've got two environmental and social analysts and one governance analyst. The team started with a governance analyst, Peter, in 2013, and he is really responsible for laying a lot of the foundation down. And from there, we got Rain, our first ENS analyst, who's really our veteran in the space. And Careful in... with the use of veteran. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 2021, Stefan joined the team as a second ENS analyst. And Stefan has quite a few years of experience as a manager in the client space. And yeah, me and him joined the same time. I'm also an internal move from, from finance, as we mentioned. And that's really how we got to our current team. Because of our approach to responsible investing, and I'm sure we'll get to it later, just the fact that ESG is integrated in our approach. It is important for us, as you mentioned, that the ESG team sits within the investment team and we're not a, a far removed team sitting in compliance or risk. And also because ESG risks can be material to the investment case. So that's why the onus has always been on the covering analyst to research their ESG issues. And where we come in is really to bring a bit of depth, so specialized knowledge, and then also breadth, because on something like executive remuneration, I look across the board at our investment universe. So it's then bringing a bit more relativity into the discussion. And you know, Rain and I, our, our work is so different because of the structure of governance versus the structure of ENS. So our work is you know, quite different in terms of what we spend our time looking at. I think we are unique in that we have split up the roles. I think a, a lot of other companies, analysts will look at ESG overall. We find the structure works really well for us because as Nicole said, she spends a lot of time engaging with remuneration committees, boards of directors, whereas often with environmental or social issues, it's also nice to speak to the head of sustainable development or the head of a certain issue that you're inquiring around, whether it be product quality assurance. You need to speak to the specialist in each case. And so we find our engagement, the nature of our engagements differ, and as does the research. So ENS, environmental or social, entails quite a lot of thematic research. And so as Nicole said, sometimes there's breadth and sometimes there's depth when you're drilling down into a specific company issue. I think we've sort of painted the picture that, you know, the ESG team is like a new team. But the reality is that, you know, we've always considered environmental, social and, and governance issues. It's in our process. I mean, even in the most recent stewardship report, we even have a quote there from 20 years ago <laughs> with um, our former chief investment officer, um, Stephen Mildenhall, where he speaks to the importance of sound corporate governance. I think we've spoken about, you know, 50 years of investing. There's so much history in that. 
Nicole, maybe you can give us some thoughts, given that you are a governance analyst and just how much of a role that played into building into what is now ESG. It's played a massive role. It was actually quite a nice learning exercise as we prepared the stewardship because just to see what those before us have done in pursuit of good governance outcomes and just how shareholder action has changed over the years. You know, today we won't have portfolio managers sitting on board seats to unlock shareholder value, but that's but what did. happened. <laughs> yeah. Late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. that's that's what was done. And if we look now, we've got much more robust shareholder rights. So that's a tool that we often use and lean on. So our shareholder action has really changed over the years. The tools we've used has changed, but the underlying principle of wanting long-term performance for clients, our shareholder action has remained true to that. I think you know, what you've said around this overarching focus on governance is also important because even as someone who does more of the ENS, environmental or social research, studies show that a company with good governance typically performs well on environmental and social issues as well. And that makes sense because you're getting the right structures in place. You've got a well-composed board with good experience. They're able to interrogate more, as Nicole said. Uh, the other thing is that it's important that every company has good governance and the right structures in place, the right remuneration incentives for executives and employees, whereas ENS issues are more material to some companies than others. So if you think of Sassel, for example, environmental issues are very important because it's got this big negative externality in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. If you think of miners, things like labor relations, union and community relations are very important in their case, as are environmental issues as well. But you know, it does speak more to some companies than others. We've sort of painted the picture just of how dynamic and nuanced environmental and social issues are. Maybe this is a good time to maybe take a step back and provide like a conceptual framework. I think there are probably about five broad categories of responsible investing. I don't know if that's correct, right, Rain? Yes. Yes, maybe is. you can maybe talk us through those five broad categories just so that people have a sense of what underpins this? Sure. It's my favorite slide in client presentations <laughs> <laughs> because I think it is important to be very clear. And I think that's part of the problem with ESG responsible investing is that, yes, and Shalati is showing me the slide in the studio, <laughs> is that it, it hasn't always been clearly defined. And so it's ended up meaning a lot of things to a lot of people. And actually, sometimes in the press, some of these approaches are conflated and that leads to misunderstandings. So to be very clear, sort of spanning a spectrum between traditional investing and philanthropy there are these five approaches you mentioned the first is screening so you can get positive screening that's the inclusion of esg leaders according to predefined methodologies in a fund negative screening which i think is the most well-known one that's exclusions uh, typically ethical exclusions such as your sin stocks alcohol tobacco gambling and more recently a big focus on fossil fuels and then you get ESG integration, which is the, the strategy that we employ. That's where you incorporate ESG factors into your investment research and decision making to better manage risk and then also to identify opportunities to improve returns. It's often paired with shareholder action, which we also use post investment because, you know, not only ESG issues, but financial operational ESG issues are all dynamic. So it's very important to remain engaged once you invest it, particularly as long term shareholders. So we we engage a lot with company boards and management teams. And then we also exercise our ownership responsibilities on behalf of clients through proxy voting. And then we get a sustainability themed investing. So that's targeting a specific theme like the climate transition. And finally, impact investing, where there is a dual objective. So both financial returns and a positive social environmental impact and the funds mandated to report on both. So as I mentioned, we focus on ESG integration and shareholder action. For me, what I'd like to just 
touch on across the spectrum, which is a question we get quite a lot um, from clients, is around the screening. We do get asked a lot of, do we do any screening? Do we have any exclusions lists? And maybe given the fact that our focus is ESG integration and shareholder engagement and action, maybe you can just give us some color in terms of why we actually don't do any screening? It's, it is a question that we get a lot. First is that we do have a concentrated universe in, in the JSE. And so we think it would be problematic to make sort of broad-based exclusions uh, that further limit that. You do want to keep optionality. There are many other considerations when you're constructing a portfolio. Even though we're bottom-up stock pickers, we do have to think of overall portfolio construction as well. The second is that we don't believe in taking a binary view on companies. And by that, I mean labeling them as good or bad, because in reality, I think it's far more complicated than that. And what you'll find is that most companies have positive and negative impacts and to varying degrees. And what you also find is that there's often trade-offs between ESG and economic factors to consider. And so what we do is we try and take a pragmatic view, recognize that unfortunately it's an imperfect world. And so we do sometimes have to be pragmatic around these interrelationships and trade-offs, mm. but of course, trying to operate as responsibly as possible within that. And definitely when we are investing in companies with negative externalities, engaging with them to try and minimize that impact as much as possible. And so that's something I try and focus on a lot, particularly on environmental and social issues, is engaging with companies on, on how they're mitigating these, the controls that they're putting in place to ensure that these incidents don't happen, for example. Um, Nicole, when it comes to shareholder engagement and action, which is one of the two pillars that underpin our process, maybe you can talk to the proxy voting element. I think just to frame where proxy voting fits in, we, we always hear the line that as bottom-up stock pickers, we invest in companies that we believe are undervalued by the market. Mm. And I think what that means from a stewardship perspective is that from the moment we invest, there's value that needs to be preserved. Mm. And that is what we try and do through our shareholder action, preserve the value that we believe to be there. And we want companies to grow and create more of that value. And also what's interesting on that is once you invested, right, sometimes there may not be any issues before you invest. And once you invested, then all of these other things may develop because, I mean, it's an ever-changing world, right? Mm, exactly. So that's why it's also quite important for us to continue to be so involved. Yes. And proxy voting is how we go about exercising our clients' shareholder rights voting at AGMs and general meetings and so on. We do apply an internal threshold, so we don't vote at all our meetings, but that's just a guideline. We will vote at any meeting that we feel will impact our client's interest. And we did kind of a coverage assessment, and we saw that we voted on 96% of our total equity position if we look at AGMs in 2022. That's quite a high percentage. Something we get asked quite a lot by mm. clients is, you know, do you vote at every at every AGM mm. and because of the way that we've sort of drafted our policy on ownership responsibilities, it makes it seem like we actually don't vote on a lot of things, but actually 96, I mean, that's only 4% that we, we, yes, we don't. Yes, and, yeah. and that's in line with our approach about quality engagements and trying to be impactful. And there's a broad range of categories we vote on, things like board structure, executive remuneration, capital structure, and the things we vote on are really determined by our shareholder rights. And I think we've got quite robust shareholder rights, especially for developing countries. So we try and, and vote on those matters as best we can. And it's important for us that the decision rests in the investment team. So similar to our investment decisions, the portfolio manager with the largest share, they have the deciding vote. 
but they are informed by the, the company analyst and the ESG team members, depending on what kind of resolution it is. So we do have a very collaborative approach and we try and capture, you know, it's not just the annual REM report that we're looking on and it's kind of stands on its own. There's a lot of context. There's what's management's track record been. There's what's the larger landscape of the industry that they're operating in and what challenges are they facing and and what's the broader context of remuneration and the trends we're seeing. Because it is a space of a lot of fads and trends and we need to be cautious that not every trend is worth following. So we really try and apply a, a lot of judgment to our decisions on the proxy voting side. I think that actually speaks to something we've been saying for a while now. We we hosted an ESG webinar last year talking about the fundamentals versus the fads of ESG. There has been a lot of hype, you could say, in the ESG space. And I'm always reluctant to speak of it as a separate industry to investing because it, it should be underpinning it. And, mm-hmm. and part of it, we always say it's intrinsic to our investment philosophy, but it has emerged somewhat as an industry of its own now. And there is a lot of hype and there are a lot of initiatives, some which are valuable, but we also try and be cautious in terms of what we're joining, what we're affiliating with, because uh, as you've said, things can change and it's a rapidly evolving space. And so we want to make sure that we have a very considered approach um, in terms of, of how we execute on our ESG. Rain, you can't mention initiatives and fans without <laughs> me then having to just jump on that bang wagon and maybe like um, put you on the spot of it. <laughs> the chickens are coming home to roost. <laughs> yes, Ray, the chickens are coming home to roost. Um, so some of these initiatives, I mean, I think we'll be remiss to maybe have this conversation without mentioning net zero, because I do think it's something that's at the forefront of the conversation at the moment. For sure. So as I said, I am. I consider myself an environmentalist. I think these issues are really important. I think climate change is an important issue. What I find about some of the methodologies supporting net zero targets at our level, at a portfolio level, is that they become more about what I call carbon accounting. Mm-hmm. And because you're trying to essentially attribute the emissions that you're accountable for at a portfolio level versus those underlying companies that you're invested in, a lot of accounting comes in, a lot of adjustments are required because there's other factors year on year that are changing that aren't related to greenhouse gas emissions performance. And at the end of the day, you could also just divest and then your your greenhouse gas intensity comes down at a portfolio level. And we've been quite consistent in saying that we don't believe that divestment is the best approach. You know, we think there are unintended consequences and actually ownership is just changing hands, but there's not necessarily a positive climate change impact. So what we've always said we commit to is engaging with companies for real world emissions reduction. And there are initiatives like the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative that target that as well. But what we thought is we'll keep it internal. We've publicized, you know, targets that we're trying to achieve to our clients so that we can be held accountable, because I think that's also important that clients know that we're trying to be transparent about it. But it's it keeps the focus on real world outcomes, which is engaging with companies to set targets that make sense. Are they sensible? Do they also consider the social context? In a country like South Africa, we have to be aware of our social challenges here. And that's a really important balance to get right. That's not saying companies just don't have to think about environmental issues in South Africa. That's, of course, not the case. But there's there's a very delicate balance and we need to make sure we get it right, particularly when you think of some of the things happening in South Africa at the moment. And so we try to be very aware of that and how we engage with companies around target setting. So, Nicole, like one of the things that we also do get asked quite a lot is around dissenting votes, right? And maybe you can speak to that and just explain, you know, the context in which we would like vote against a particular resolution. 
whether it's REM or directors? Sure. So when we dissent that, we mean we, we recommend our clients abstain or we recommend they vote against a particular resolution. And board structure is an, is an area that we get, as you mentioned, quite a few questions on. And there we, we vote on directors in their capacity to sit on boards and to sit on audit committees. Those are the two mandatory ones we have. And then the occasional company will have a voluntary resolution to appoint something like their social and ethics committee. And for these resolutions, we try and be very mindful when it comes to directors of our position because we are outsiders. We don't know what happens in a boardroom. We don't know which director is the, the one that's actually opposing the big payout to management that, that doesn't align with performance. So we try and look at the publicly available information to us, and we do consider a range of factors, board composition, skills, expertise, but if I look at the main reasons why we recommend against or abstain from directors, it comes back to their track record and what we can see and, and what we've monitored from their track record. So we do take a look at what have shareholder outcomes been under a particular board, under a particular auditcom or remcom, or even an executive, for example, a CEO that's a mining CEO that's been responsible for significant value destruction mm. at, at a company. Now they've retired and now they're trying to secure a non-executive role elsewhere. You know, do we think reasonably this individual can add value to the board so those are the types of situations we look at or or a remco chair that oversaw a huge payout that that wasn't justified should they remain and should they then be able to take on other roles in that same capacity so we do focus a lot on on monitoring shareholder outcomes and i think that's where our, our tools come in we've got a director's database and the team flags any issues of directors being indications of being fraudulent, unethical, issues of competence and you know, issues like that. And, and we'll add them and we'll monitor them. But there's a lot of discussion that goes around it because, you know, as you can imagine, there's a lot of layers to this. How long do you recommend against someone? And when have they proven themselves? So we try and be very cognizant that it's a difficult role and we don't have all the answers. I'd just like to jump in there because you mentioned tools, Nicole. And I think something which we always say is we would like to be consistent in our approach to ESG and our philosophy, but at the same time continue to make annual improvements. And so these tools are, are ways in which we're trying to bring more structure and more continuity to ESG, particularly for uh, new starters in our team. There's so much institutional knowledge in our team. We learn so much from the PMs, but we want to make sure that that's recorded and it can you know, flow through to, to newcomers. Because as Nicole said, there's often a very long history that we have to consider. And so another tool that we implemented fairly recently was uh, what we call the controversies database. And that's where we monitor adverse news flow for companies. And it's proven quite useful, firstly, to highlight potential engagement areas with companies where you can see some adverse news flow, you think it's potentially a concern, we investigate further and we decide whether we have comfort that the company is tackling it or whether we think we need to check in in a year or so. Uh, so there's different actions that we can take. But the other thing is you do start to identify trends. Is something coming up for the same company over and over again? Are there IT breaches, for example, if it's a financial services company? And I think what's also useful with that is it's supporting our thinking in terms of executive remuneration mm -hmm. and ESG metrics in executive remuneration. Because if you're starting to see perhaps a trend or you're seeing something that looks worrying, 
Uh, a lot of companies are now starting to incorporate ESG metrics into their remuneration. And I think it gives us just another data point in terms of thinking about what is actually a really material metric. You know, Nicole mentioned earlier that we're looking for ESG factors material to the investment case. And that's a really important part of what we do because we're trying to distill the fact that there's a lot of factors and there are a lot of E, S and G themes and considerations. And we're trying to distill what's most material. And that should be what filters through into remuneration. And I think that's great, that point that you make, because it, I think it also provides that bridge between ES and G, right? Because usually you might see them as two separate sort of elements, but when those matrix actually mm. come to the fore, it does. And the controversy has been particularly useful because we then try and tie it, as Rain said, to our executive remuneration. For example, if there's been a very large IT incident at a bank and it's public news, how does that filter through to those ultimately accountable? And because these companies do have non-financial measures, so then we try and translate and see how has that impacted pay. It's true. And, you know, I think it's important for for people to realise that it's not in silos. And so I think Nicole and I always enjoy when we have an opportunity to overlap. And I think another area is mining safety. So that's crucial for miners. You know, we obviously, from a human perspective, you want mines to be as safe as possible. Nobody wants fatalities at mines. Uh, at the same time, it also affects productivity. It has financial implications. So there is a materiality to the investment case as well. And miners have been including safety in their short-term incentives typically for, for years now. Uh, so some thematic research that I did was looking at a sector level benchmarking of miners safety metrics. You know, you can look at various metrics to to try and see how they're performing over time. And, you know, the hope is that that also supports us when we have ESG executive remuneration engagements that we've got, as Nicole said, we can try and bring breadth to the conversation because we've done that that benchmarking at a at a sectoral level. With this discussion, what what has really for me come across quite clearly is the importance of proxy voting and how how it helps in in terms of providing structure to the governance element. I think that, you know, even though there is a changing tide in terms of proxy voting um, resolutions related to the environmental and social side, they aren't nearly as much as they are on the governance side. So I'm quite interested to hear what are the levers, for example, that are that are on the environmental and social side for us to still have influence and for us to actually be able to do something from basically from the perspective of being able to helping our clients exercise the ownership rights in a company. It's true. There are far fewer environmental and social resolutions. Uh, I think it has changed a bit over the years. We're seeing more uh, shareholder tabled resolutions coming through, and those are often on ENS issues. The and one by that's shareholder been... tabled, you mean shareholders are the ones that are requesting? Yes, thank you. <laughs> so uh, I think a, one that's very relevant to our universe is the say on climate vote, which is coming through. So it's almost like a say on pay, like you get for executive remuneration, but now around a company's climate strategy. So we have engaged with companies in our investment universe on that, you know, uh, Glencore, Sassol, two of our most material emitters. And so we've spent a lot of time engaging with them on that. I think an important point to mention here is also that we don't believe in just voting against a company and not providing mm. reasoning before that. It's really important to engage with them. And, and we do have you know, an escalation process in terms of the steps that we would take. So of course, your first port of call is to engage. And I, our experience has been that the engagements are generally quite constructive. And I think, as Nicole said earlier, we also have to have humility in that you're not the only company engaging or the only stakeholder engaging, and these companies are doing their own research. And so a lot of these improvements that are being made 
are, you know, it's very hard to attribute them to an outcome that we have created. I think there's many factors that influence it, but I do think it helps when material shareholders are engaging with companies that are in the detail of their strategies on environmental and social issues. And Nicole's very much in the detail on governance. <laughs> that goes without saying. So I think that does help in terms of prioritizing it. And just to add, the effect of ESG measures in remuneration, that is so significant because now what's happening is in our kind of standing governance engagement where we discuss this with companies, we are bringing in the material ESG risks and opportunities for each company. So it's being part of the discussion and this discussion, it's powerful because it's with board representatives. So now you've got the REM chair and you often have the board chair also sitting in. So we are bringing these issues to their attention and it's in a transparent manner. When we say it's incorporated in remuneration, it means the targets are there, the measures are there. You know, we try and enhance disclosure and encourage disclosure as much as possible. So it is there in a, in a transparent manner. We can see the targets, we can hold companies accountable. So that's that's quite big. The other thing is that I think that some of the incorporation of ESG metrics is quite new. Although we said like the mining sector where it's been subject to much more scrutiny than other sectors for a long time has been incorporating them for longer. For other sectors, it is newer. And so I think some companies are still thinking about what the best metrics to include are. So we're wanting to do a lot of work to see, you know, can we help in terms of what shareholders would be looking to see and making sure that it remains material to to the investment case and, and to long-term shareholders. We we're actually having a discussion yesterday with some of the analysts around when should an ESG metric be incorporated? You know, some of these seem more like social license to operate, for example. Now, should that be something that you receive additional remuneration for, or should that be part of your operating mandate, your license to operate? So there's also that balance that we're trying to to understand better and think of how companies are getting that right. Sometimes you should be doing things just to be a good corporate citizen and not necessarily remunerated more on that basis. But at the same time, we're not against encouraging companies to think more holistically around their impact. Exactly. And when we say, you know, incorporated in in remuneration, that's really when we're talking about the performance-based pay, the variable pay, and in addition to mm -hmm. executives' guaranteed pay yes. to be remunerated additionally, as Rain mentioned. So it's a lot to consider. And I think, Nicole, that's where you really focus on disclosure because it's harder to measure ESG factors sometimes, then disclosure around it becomes very important because you have to make sure that there is some quantifiable yes. means or at least a well thought out framework for how they're being remunerated on those elements. And it comes at a, at a cost in a sense because where previously a director's full annual bonus might have been measured 100% on financial metrics, robust financial metrics that are transparent and we can measure. Now a part of that has been pulled away, let's say 30%, and that's now on soft and non-financial measures that are less transparent, less quantifiable. So it really also increases the importance of the remaining financial measures need to still be stretching. And are, are they the right financial measures? So when we speak about we want there to be alignment, it's that we want pay outcomes for executives to be closely aligned to shareholder outcomes. And it's concerning when that alignment with financial outcomes reduces. I think we've spoken a lot about the materiality to the investment case. And one of my favorite lines from the, this, the latest stewardship report is when Duncan Artis, our chief investment officer, actually says, you know, we aim to be a great asset manager that integrates ESG well in our approach rather than being an ESG focused company that manages client assets. So 
let's make this a bit more real when we talk about integrating it into our investment process. How does this actually translate into impacting an investment case? So there are different ways that it can impact. And sometimes it's easily quantifiable. So if you think of a company like Sassel, a large emitter in absolute terms, second largest emitter in South Africa, and we have carbon tax. If we look at how that carbon tax is supposed to escalate, that is a material risk for Sassel. You know, there are other considerations there on social impact in that case, uh, but the reality is it's a risk and we have to consider it. And so it's something that our analyst quantifies and incorporates into our research report and we debate it at policy group meetings because it's it's something that could materially affect the company. At other times, you can't quantify it yet, but you know that there's much greater risk today than there was histor- historically. An example there is if you're thinking of a thermal coal mining company, you know that there are a range of possible outcomes now in terms of thermal coal demand going forward. Recognizing that uncertainty, you wouldn't value it on the same multiple of earnings as you would a future-facing commodity like copper, cobalt, nickel, uh, obviously assuming all else equal, you know, there's other considerations. But I think that speaks to the fact that we would compensate for greater uncertainty in terms of ESG risks by valuing it on a lower multiple being more conservative. And then there's other ways um, that you can think about it. If you are looking at a mining company where there are a lot of social issues around the mining site, a lot of community disruptions, if there's an unstable political environment, these things all filter through. Uh, They come through in our analysts' policy group reports, and then they may find ways to quantify them to try and compensate for that risk. And then I think just more broadly, you know, we do consider macro ESG issues, I call them. So in the South African context, we've got load shedding, we have uh, infrastructure failures as a result, we've got some heightening uh, criminal security risks. So, you know, those are things that you have to think about because those come with a cost, an additional cost. Uh, But that's not to say there's not challenges elsewhere in the world. Uh, You know, globally, we're looking at geopolitical divisions, thinking about risks around that, how might that alter flows? What about carbon border adjustment mechanisms if developed countries start placing uh, border adjustment mechanisms for carbon tax? And for example, South Africa is a very carbon intensive economy. How does that affect things? So it's not always direct in the valuation, but there's a lot of different ways in which I think it can materially impact it. And we certainly need to discuss it and think about it. Rain, what you sort of speaking to is the fact that we don't operate in a vacuum and that there is a lot of um, factors at play. So bringing it um, into, I guess, the real world, um, what are some of the positive trends that we are seeing? Um, Nicole, it'd be great to hear from your perspective. Sure. I think a big positive over the last few years has been the broader governance developments on a policy and regulation side, because we're heavily involved at a company level and and providing suggestions and recommendations and voting. But what really has a big impact is when things change at at a broader regulatory level. So things like the Companies Act Amendment Bill and the JSC listings review that they did last year, those are really powerful pieces that will really change how we go about exercising our proxy votes. how we evaluate things, what resolutions are actually included in AGMs. So it's important for us to have a voice in those discussions and really participate and be a part of the public consultation process so that we can use our experience and, and get some safeguards in there to make sure if, if something's being introduced, how are shareholder rights still being protected? And is there another way to balance things and alternative recommendations? So I think that feedback side of things in the consultation process is, is a big part of our governance role. Globally, 
I think there's also been a, a big increase in regulatory scrutiny in terms of how ESG is being incorporated into the investment space. And I think that was overdue. ESG incorporation within investments has boomed in the past few years. It's it's accelerated very quickly. And that means that, you know, regulators needed to get on top of it and ensure that the necessary oversight was being provided. The result of that is we're seeing a lot of funds downgrade their uh, self-provided ESG labels. And I think that that's going to be good for the space in general because it you know, there's been a lot of accusations around greenwashing. It's something we've always tried to be conscious of, ensure that we're not overstating what we do, being transparent and honest about the complexities we face, the trade-offs that we face. And uh, on that, maybe it's good to maybe explain what greenwashing is. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, ESG lingo. Greenwashing is, is almost where you overstate your green credentials. Uh, and the joke in the ESG community now is that uh, it's moved to green hushing, where no one wants to talk about it because they don't want to overstate <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we on that spectrum, <laughs> Um In terms of other trends, this is, uh, well, uh, not as positive, but in the US, we've seen quite a strong uh, swell of anti-ESG sentiment. And I think that's been interesting because it's it's sort of divided between Republicans and Democrats. And we see Republican states pushing back on ESG, actually passing bills around sort of boycotting companies that are boycotting energy companies in turn. Uh, and it's an interesting one for me because it's almost been caught up in some of these socio-political debates in the US. And I think that's because it, it often is so broadly defined that it means a lot of things to people. Uh, I think ESG in the way that we integrate it, I only see that as a positive um, because of materiality to the investment case. But I think because there's been a lot of subjectivity and interpretations around it, we've seen it caught up. And, you know, you've seen some high profile scandals like um, the collapse of the crypto exchange FTX had been given a higher governance rating than, a, a, you know, a company like ExxonMobil, for example. On that note, you know, there is a really big um, debate and discussion right now around the energy trilemma. Uh, maybe we can just discuss that as well. It definitely came to the fore last year, and I think that was because of the shock from the Russia-Ukraine war. And in terms of the energy trilemma, there's three pillars, and that's reliable energy. And I think that speaks to South Africans at the moment. We can see what happens when you don't have that reliability, what happens to an economy. And the next is affordability. There's still 800 million people in the world that don't have access to electricity. And affordable energy is a really important part of modern society uh, and being able to improve your prosperity. And then thirdly is ensuring that we significantly decarbonize because of climate change concerns. Uh, but I think what happened with Russia, Ukraine and these shocks is that that energy security pillar really came to the fore. And so we, we have to recognize that all three of these are really important. And this challenge of decarbonizing our energy system, which, as I said, underpins our modern world, is a huge one. And you're essentially trying to rewire the economy. If you think about it, you've got power, transport, industrial uses, buildings, things like that. And you're trying to decarbonize all of these pillars, which in many ways involves further electrification, putting more pressure onto our grids while simultaneously trying to decarbonize them. And, you know, when you look at sort of these lower carbon options like uh, wind, solar, nuclear, uh, strong negative sentiment towards nuclear. So then you've got these variable renewable energy sources like wind and solar, but you need a reliable source ultimately. And so it's this big challenge of how do we achieve that 
in a way that's cost-effective, feasible in terms of mineral intensity. All of these things require a lot of minerals to develop. And so it's why I enjoy researching it so much. It's very complex and it keeps me busy. <laughs> I think that, you know, on that, that has got a lot of also real-world consequences as well, right? Because it also speaks to this whole discussion around the energy transition and also bringing it back to the companies that we research and invest in. It also has possibilities of unlocking opportunities for them and could also be risks to them as well. So maybe we can just touch on that a, a little bit as well. Like what is, what? how does the, the energy transition discussion actually translate into opportunities or risks? One which tends to go unnoticed is for platinum group metal miners, for example. So the primary demand for, for PGMs is currently from or auto sector, so 80% of palladium and rhodium demand, about 40% of platinum demand. And that is through their use in catalytic converters and internal combustion engines. So it actually reduces the harmful emissions. It's a, an environmental positive today. But when you shift to battery electric vehicles, those commodities aren't needed in that way. So we've got PGM miners in our investment universe. It's something that we've discussed at policy group meetings. Uh, I spend a lot of time looking at electric vehicle penetration and seeing how fast it's moving throughout the world, trying to think of potential constraints in time. I spoke to, um, you know, material constraints, something like lithium, what will happen in terms of um, battery metal demand. Mm. Uh, other things seem to be resolving themselves with, with favorable policy, you know, things like battery factory capacity growth and things like that, and very favorable policy towards a shift to battery electric vehicles. If you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, in, in America, for example. I mean, something that Rory on our investment team always talks about is that it's not the Inflation Reduction Act, it will increase inflation because, you know, transitioning your economy in, at such scale will be inflationary mm -hmm. because it's going to come at a cost. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that is something to think about as well. You know, um, there are trade-offs to consider and people, we've seen what happens in the world when energy prices rise, how people struggle and how people react. Mm. And so I think people also have to appreciate when you're trying to transition an economy, it does come with behavioral change. Mm. And the question is, can people change mm -hmm. and do they want to? Mm. So I think that's also an interesting part of the research. Mm. Other ways we spoke to, you know, impacts on thermal coal, future facing commodities, that's one of the things that you know, I think is good about Glencore. It's got a really good uh, commodity basket. So it's got thermal coal, yes, and that's a very cash generative business. But then it's also got a strong uh, commodity basket in terms of, as mm. I said, copper, nickel, zinc, which are all very necessary in, in a more electrified economy. Mm. And then, you know, there could be other ways that ESG themes come through, perhaps a tailwind for cardboard producer as, as the society moves away from plastics. Mm. So, you know, there are considerations in other spheres as well. So we normally focus a lot on the E and the G and the middle child S is usually forgotten. And I think the tech story is a great one because people don't think of social in the tech space, but there's a lot going on there at the moment as well. Uh, that's true. And something we have looked at over time is that a lot of these ESG funds, not all, but a lot do uh, have a lot in big tech in particular. And something Duncan always speaks to is that people forget about the social implications of tech. It's so pervasive in our lives now. You know, a lot of people are very anti-mining, but 
they're producing commodities that most of us use on a daily basis or structures and things that we benefit from. And that will be important for the energy transition. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Critical. You're right. Whereas with tech, there are a lot of ESG considerations as well. So socially, if we think of data privacy issues, uh, particularly around children's data privacy, big antitrust issues in terms of governance, Mm. going back to social uh, harmful and and at times disturbing content being much more readily available than it would have been in the past, the spread of misinformation, hate speech. Mm. That's not to say that's their only impacts. Of course, there's there's positive impacts as well, but that's precisely what we're saying is that it's not binary. And these are still big negative externalities that have to be managed. They're quite new. We're still learning as a society, I think, how to deal with some of the implications of these things. But it is interesting to us that funds would typically overweight tech at the expense of of other things like mining energy, which, you know, love them or hate them are providing a necessary good for the world as we know it. So, you know, I think we have seen a bit of a shift there and we've seen ratings providers starting to scrutinize that more closely. We've seen some of the tech companies falling out of the, the funds that previously would have held them. But, you know, it's still they're still there and a lot of them and it speaks to the fact that it's very difficult trying to develop an ESG labeled fund Mm -hmm. that captures all of those. And I mean, on that, you know, that's something that we also get asked quite a lot. So I think that's really great that you've also pointed that out that, you know, it's so nuanced and that's probably one of the key driving factors behind us, maybe not necessarily going into having an ESG like labeled. You know, failures usually dominate the headlines, but we're in a fortunate position to have seen, you know, and been involved over time within the space, given that it's embedded in our investment process. What are some of the things that have actually been quite positive over the last maybe decade that you can sort of speak to positive changes that we've seen? Yes, I think if we look at the last decade, the use of the Companies Act to reconstitute a board, the new Companies Act, that was quite a big event. That was in 2017 with Group 5. We were successful in getting a lot of new non-executive directors on the board. And in this case, it wasn't successful in the end. But I think just the use of the Companies Act, it it meant a lot for shareholder rights in the country. One thing that is very clear is that this is a very complex topic and that it's ever-changing dynamic. Um, And I think it would be really helpful to maybe just, you know, leave us with maybe a thought um, on, on this space. Sure. I think for me, context is so important when we think about ES and G solutions. I think it's important that we are cognizant that we are part of a very unique market, a unique country with our own challenges. With governance developments, we often reference what the London Stock Exchange is doing, what the NASDAQ is doing. And while that has merit, we are fundamentally very different. And I think our solutions need to mirror and address our unique challenges, and Rain has touched on that a lot. So context for me in in where we are placed in the bigger ecosystem is quite important. So it's very important that we take our experience and what we've learned from the process and how it can be improved and make sure we, we have a voice and have a say in how governance progresses on the policy and regulatory side, because that balance is so important. In something like shareholder rights, you want to protect the rights that shareholders have and you want them to strengthen, but you also don't want it to become overburdensome for issuers. And then the negative consequence is companies don't want to be listed or no one wants to serve on a board because it's too rigorous. So we do have to always try and be mindful of what is the impact of what we're trying to do on the different 
role players? I think from my side, and Nicole touched on it earlier, was this quality, not quantity piece. I think as uh, ESG has become more popular, uh, you know, as you said earlier, Inshallati, activists, society are more interested in what asset managers are doing. But I think for me, it's really important that we get the quality, not quantity right. So rather than engaging with every company every single year just to say we've engaged what we try and do is deep dive research where we feel that there's something material that the esg teams picked up or that the analyst has flagged and would like us to do more research into uh, and then engage very meaningfully with the company and i think that also builds up credibility with the companies if you go to them and you show that you've done the work you know these companies are putting out huge amounts of disclosures now that's one thing that's come through with with more esg focus is that there's a lot of guidelines frameworks reporting criteria and so we go through that first and then what we can't answer from there we approach the company and i think by doing so we'll have more ability to influence when necessary because we've shown that we're willing to engage pragmatically. As Nicole says, we appreciate the context. We also have to bear in mind that the JSC top 40, a lot of the revenue is derived offshore. And so you're often grappling with context of different jurisdictions and regions. And so I think if we continue to focus on quality engagements and research, you know, that'll underpin uh, both better investment performance and also ensuring that we have a good relationship with companies going forward in terms of uh, the ability to influence change. I couldn't agree more. At the crux of it, what you said, Nicole, about, you know, the context is so important. The South African context is not similar to anywhere else in the world. And I think what you're speaking about, quality over quantity, I think, I'm not sure even I'm, if I'm allowed to do this, but a shameless plug is the fact that you guys actually do a lot of work and you actually work really hard. Um, and I really do think it's important to just sort of um, mention this, that, you know, a lot of this information is actually available on our website, you know, within the responsible investing space, all our policies that um, discuss our approach to responsible investing Investing, our stewardship reports that we publish annually, all of that information is actually available that you guys work so hard to sort of put together for our clients. A big thank you to my colleagues, Rain and Nicole, for a really interesting and insightful conversation. We discussed many of the complexities and factors we consider when investing on behalf of our clients and explain why we believe that companies that don't act responsibly in pursuit of profits over the short term are likely to be bad investments over the long term. We also explain why we aim to be a great asset manager that integrates ESG in our approach and decision-making, rather than an ESG-focused company that manages clients' assets. To share your thoughts on this episode, you can send an email to info at this podcast is available wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe on your favorite platform to be informed of new episodes. Lastly, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the T's and C's and explore our latest insights and investment offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Shalati Sungwane. This podcast was produced by Volume. Thank you for listening. <laughs>